Welcome to this week's episode of The Seminar Room, where Justin and I share topics and advice on helping you become the engineer that you want to be. On this week's episode of The Seminar Room, we'll be going over topics such as imposter syndrome, and Tony, myself, Justin, and Emily will be sharing some stories and some advice on that. We'll also be going through topics like the question of the week, how to interact with the Seminar Room podcast, and we also have a special little surprise that hopefully happens a few more times in the next few weeks. Right. We also cover some tips on taking notes as well. Ah, yes. Notes. So the topic um, that we want to cover this week is imposter syndrome. So that's something that, I mean, I know I've felt that way. Have you felt that way? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Um, So so one thing we want to do, this is something that everyone goes through. So we want to normalize this. Um, So... We're going to share some stories, and then uh, later on in the episode, um, Emily will come in and share a, uh, a story of how she felt like this, too. So uh, we're going to get three different perspectives today, but moving on, if you have stories to share, um, feel free to share those um, imposter stories. I mean, I want to normalize this. I, I really think it's important. Do you agree that it's important to to understand that other people feel this way too. It's right, just... absolutely. Like it, everybody goes through this. I mean, it was even humbling to hear uh, Ron talk about how he had a moment of feeling like this at MIT. Right. And it, when, when, when Ron feels something like that, then you can really assure that, like, oh, this is something that, yeah, even even the greats, yeah. quote unquote, The great feel. Ron also felt imposter syndrome once. That's amazing. So I actually have, I mean, this has happened to me many times. Um, and I think that's one of the great things about having that requirement that the facilitators, at least for the Bell program, have you know at least two years of industry experience. So um, the the story that that stands out in my mind that I really want to share actually happened before my first day at AMI. Um, so I was hired to be the the GSI engineer, uh, which is the Great Ships Initiative. Um, so that project was monitoring the spread of invasive species throughout um, the Great Lakes. Um, and they're also doing some ballast water type approval, but that's not really what this story is about. So I was invited to their annual meeting, which is actually the Friday before I started. I started the following Wednesday, which was March 1st, and this was on the Friday before that. Um, so <laughs> I'm sitting there in this room of like 30 some people and I am the least educated person in this room. So like I'm, uh, so it was, I hadn't finished my bachelor's degree yet. My supervisor from AMI was actually is a PE, and he had his bachelor's in civil engineering. Um, but we're the only people without master's degrees and PhDs and many, many, many letters after our names. Um, so I was sitting there listening to them talk, and they're going over. This is like their annual like kickoff meeting. It was in February. Um, so I'm sitting there listening like, oh, my God, what am I <laughs> even doing here? Like, I have no idea what a uh, uh, flagellate or I can't even remember, <laughs> protozoas and stuff like that. They're talking about organisms, zooplankton. Or genus, and, like a, a genus yeah. species or whatever. What, like in the animal kingdom, your, yep. your genus or whatever. Right, yeah. And, you know, this, this organism has a hard carapace and this organism does not. So we have to analyze these as different. It's like, oh, my gosh, I don't even know what I'm doing here. 
Um, but anyway, they had lunch and I was, you know, mingling cause that's what you do. I have to meet, these are the people I'm going to work with. But, um, and then after lunch, they started talking about equipment and then that's when I really learned that now I'm the most knowledgeable person in the room because now we're getting into my specialty. Um, so, you know, throughout this project, um, I was really able to utilize the, the broad skill set and all the project experience that I got at IRE, um, that I was exposed to as well as, you know, the problem solving skills and the professionalism skills. So, I mean, even with, within a few months, I, I had reverse engineered all of the equipment. Um, I'd even upgraded those, those equipments and, uh, created the drawings and documentation and operating manuals. And I was actually, um, beginning to organize teams and getting, getting different teams in different States on ships all over North America. So, I mean, I, I quickly learned that, I mean, you can't know everything, right? So um, I quickly learned that there's things that I knew that those people didn't. So, I mean, um, that's yeah, all I, that's my imposter story. Right. There's there's always that uh, area of expertise you can become if you, if you can be open to looking for it right. when you see the situations. Yeah. So, Justin, we did get a submission on the Google form for another question of the week. Nice. Um, so this is from an anonymous student, um, and they say, I have a hard time staying motivated when trying to reach my professional development goals. Do you have any tips to help me see my goals with a more level head? Mm, that's a good question. This is a yeah, good question. Yeah, we should probably think about that one for a little bit, then we'll come back to it. That sounds great. So Justin, I shared my uh, imposter story. Uh, do you have any? Do you have any that stand out in your mind? Yeah, I have a pretty good one. And uh, for those uh, through the Bell program, have probably heard clips of this, but not the whole story. And uh, I guess I'll share for both both the Bell and IRE students here. Is um, so I was initially hired by QA One um, in between my in between my senior semesters as a summer uh, engineering intern to reprogram what they have as a coordinate measuring machine and in a nutshell it's a piece of like cnc equipment the size of a washing machine that inspects the dimensions of manufactured parts by lightly touching off on the part with something roughly the size of a one millimeter ruby tip and uh, the idea behind that is that a cnc operator can follow the prompts on the computer that's attached to the cmm they can fixture the part to the table and then let the cmm touch off on the part giving the operator a port on which features are in and out of tolerance uh, in, in a fraction, like a fifth of the time that it would take somebody in the QC lab to inspect that part by hand. Right. So without this, someone is sitting there with a, a digital caliper and measuring off. Yeah. Of, calipers, so. mics, gauge pins, lots of training, lots of uh, human error that can get involved and all of that can get eliminated with a CMM. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So right before I got there, QA1 upgraded their CMM to have a head that can be programmed to move automatically to a ton of different positions and allowing the machine to reach into obscure angled features on a part uh, and measure a lot more uh, dimensions. And you do stuff like diameters and distance angles. There's positioning relative to other features on the part that you can use. Uh, there's a lot of power in the software involved with the machine. And uh, with that new automated head, uh, meant that all the old programs that 
were on the machine were now useless. So it was my task at the beginning of my internship to be trained on how to use the basics of the program and then take off on my own and make all of the program, like make all of the part programs for everything that came out of the CNC department at QA1, which ended up being like 140 different parts. Wow. Anything from like the size of a quarter up to like basically a billet piece of aluminum the size of like a softball. Most of the, our stuff was in that that size. But uh, so I did know that the two employees currently working there knew the software and had programmed the machine uh, with the old head. But I was really nervous to be able to uh, catch up on the program fast enough and actually get all of this done before my internship ended because I didn't know that a co-op was going to start in the fall. I hadn't brought that up yet. That was something that I brought up in like the beginning of July. Right. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I was really nervous about that. And then the advanced composites engineer at the time, Scott, he was the one that trained me in the first couple days. And he was, like, still is one of the hands down the most intelligent people I've ever met. And he expressed struggle with this program. So I was like, oh, man, if this, like, really smart person is having trouble with it, how how, how am I, an intern, just going to get, jump up on this in the next couple weeks and then be on my own? Wow. Yeah. So you didn't really even have a chance to to get your feet wet and like do any kind of just sit and not read, really read things and do paperwork. Yeah, I had like, like a couple running. days of tour and introductions, and then like once that head was installed by this guy from Mitutoyo that came and connected it, uh, it, it was go time because that was one of their biggest holdups in the CNC department was that it took so long for parts to get out of QC and say that, yes, this setup is good to go. You can run your 500 parts in the, in the CNC equipment wow. machine. Yep. So, um, but then, yeah, after a couple of weeks of getting the hang of the software uh, and, and QA1's inspection process, I was able to take off on my own. Uh, I made a bunch of improvements to the old inspection process. Just all the, the prompts and the pictures and stuff that came up on the screen on how to set things up. Like I, I standardized that and made an operating procedure for it because that wasn't there. That was all done by whoever was coming to run the machine, kind of set it up the way they wanted to. Right. So I, I standardized that. And then within a month, I found some features in the software that at the time were unknown by the other two that trained me uh, on, the, on the software. And those features, what was really exciting about that is that if if you were programming a part and say you made it all the way through and you wanted to run it and make sure that it worked, if it made it halfway through and crashed, uh, if it just if it touches the part to basically if it, if it thinks it's supposed to be just moving and it hits the part, it, it stops. Oh. Previously, if that happened, you had to shut down that part program, all the sequences that just happened. Some of them are 15 minutes long, so you could be you could be at the end almost. You could be 14 and a half minutes into it, oh. and if it crashes. You have to make an adjustment and then start from the beginning, get all the way up to that point, and then see if it worked. Huh. Yeah, that's how the first few weeks of me using the program and how it was completely done before I got there. I found that there's a, a setting in the software or a, yeah, a, a screen that you can pull up where you can pause the program wherever you're at, make edits anywhere past that part in the program, and then continue from where you left off. Wow. So yeah, that saved like that that cut it down by like a tenth on some of the parts that I made. That's amazing. Especially when yeah, there were there were parts that came out of CNC that were almost a direct copy of another one and then I was able to copy an initial part program, make a few edits to make a new part and then go on from there and that would take an hour 
to make a brand new part program to whereas before I figured out that setting in the software that would have taken like three days of programming from scratch again. Right. So uh, within a month, I became the industry or the, the, yeah, the like, uh, um, industry, industry expert Lofty over, here. Here. Mm-hmm. over here. Uh, yeah, but I was able to come and, and, and be the, yeah, the, the location expert right. on that software. And, and I'm, I've, I've still gotten texts and calls on, Hey, how I'm, I'm keep crashing this thing. Is there anything I can work with? And right. I'll have to try and get like on video and see if I can help out a little bit with what's going on. So to recap, so Justin went from what, basically peeing in your own pants. Yeah, practically. Yeah. Yep. To, to being the, the on-site expert at something as an intern. So that's a pretty good story. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. That one. Thank you. Yeah. It was, it was a really good experience and, and to get the, uh, to get the experience in quality inspection and how important that is to a company where their name is on everything oh, yeah. that comes out the door is, yeah, that was an eye opener for sure. Right. There's a lot more than to money than just time. Like quality is one of the biggest parts of huge. Yeah. So. Yeah. Especially when it's in the name. So QA one is quality and affordability are number one. Oh yeah. Then you better, you better yeah, be doing it. It better be there. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's get back to that question that Tony asked uh, earlier. Okay, so that, that question again was, um, so the person is having a hard time staying motivated with their um, professional uh, development goals, and they're wondering how some tips or some ways to see how their goals with a more level head. So I actually have two thoughts on this, and, and feel free to chime in um, what, if you if you need, feel the need, Justin. Absolutely. Um, so so maybe the goals you're setting aren't aren't truly meaningful to you. Um, so if you think of the M, I mean we've thought of that M before as measurable, but let's also think of that M and smart goals as meaningful. So um, as as we're changing gears from being students to being our own person, our own being a professional engineer, uh, we have to get out of that mindset of. Uh, creating goals that we think maybe our facilitator or professor wants to hear. So maybe maybe it's just a matter of um, maybe reformatting those goals into something that's more meaningful to you, and that will help. Right. It's this is a good time to start thinking about how are these goals going to affect your life and your 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 professional life in five years. Right. And then and then my other thought on this is maybe that goal is just a little bit too lofty. Um, so maybe you need to break that goal into more components so you're not getting burnt out. So I always think of goal setting like um, you're standing at the bottom of a staircase looking at the top. Um, you know, you can you can skip maybe one or two steps, uh, but most people can't really jump like 10 steps in one shot. Well, you so, can with your daddy long legs, but well, I, I'm limited to like two steps maybe. I said most people, I'm not <laughs> most people. <laughs> You know, so, so, you know, basically if you think of it, like to get to your goal, you have to go step by step. Um, otherwise you're just gonna, if you try to jump those 10 steps and those fall flat on your face, you know, obviously you're not going to maybe try again. So, you know, break those down. I guess what I'm getting at is maybe that goal is attainable, but it's not really the steps you're taking aren't really realistic. So, um, you know, all those, those components of a smart goal. Um, your goal might be attainable, but you just might have to break that goal up and do a couple things. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like the, the action plans that are underneath those smart goals are uh, arguably more important than what the goal itself is. 
right the journey is almost it's it's as important or even more important than than the destination philosophical tony over here i love it this is more conversational reading with tony (laughs) (laughs) philosophy so the next section that we're gonna uh talk about is something that was brought up from last podcast was note taking and Ron really wanted Tony and I to uh, elaborate more on what we were discussing that week as well so we're going to jump into uh, more note taking right I think my direct quote was uh, this section brought to you by notes take them take them yeah take them uh, so how do you take how does one go about taking notes um, well I want to preamble this with um Try not to ever take notes with your phone or your laptop. Uh, the exception to that being if you had an iPad um, with like the Apple Pencil, so it does actually look like you're physically taking notes. Yeah, there's something to that, right? The the physical act of of writing versus it uh, typing can look like texting right. too easily. And and perception is a big part of this. This is the, my advice for this this component is just simply for perception. Um, Older folks, such as me, um, <laughs> if I'm talking to you and you grab your phone and start hammering away at it, uh, I don't think you're listening to me and I get, I kind of think that's rude. Uh, you could be capturing everything I say, uh, but that's not the, my perception. Um, so especially when you're dealing with uh, like supervisors, managers, uh, perception is everything if you want to advance in this industry. Yep. Um, the other reason I would say that is simply, <laughs> are you like going to walk around all the time with your laptop? I mean, chances are you're going to run into people in the hallway and have to ask a question, and uh, you're not going to have the laptop there to take notes on. Um, and I would suggest I mean, clicking away at the keys in the meeting uh, isn't probably the right way to go about it either. Every, every uh, department meeting I was ever in, everyone had a pad of paper or, and, a, and a pencil or a pen to write with. Right, that can get pretty distracting hearing Andrew cracking away on yeah. his keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> and his giant keyboard. Um, so the way I did this is I, I used to buy the little, uh, I don't know what they are, two and a half by four uh, little pads of paper. Uh, you can get them at Walmart, Target. They're spiral bound ones. I used to get the, you know, the stapled ones. Um, and they're, you know like a buck for 20 of them you know what i mean so it's like it's it's really cheap i always had a pen or a pencil in my front right pocket and i just walk around with that pad of paper in my back pocket and if anyone had something that they needed me to do i'd whip that pad out and i'd write write it down and then when i got back to my desk then i would transfer that to whatever i needed to whether that was now i have to transfer this into an email or uh, i have to enter these into a spreadsheet uh, however it was and then um, my other piece of advice is to have a system and stick with it so yeah, be consistent yeah, consistency is key um, so like for instance my system was um, you know obviously conversation I just wrote it notes um, I would star things if they were important um, but if I took measurements of something I would circle those and if I recorded numbers off a of serial like a, a motor tag or something, uh, then I put a box around those or, or phone numbers, something that um, wasn't something that I record or um, measured. Then I put a box around it. If I measured it, then I circled it just so it was 
when I got back to my desk, I knew what all these numbers were because sometimes it was. Right. You could have done 50 things in between when you took those notes and got back to your desk to actually, yeah, record your notes. Yep. And if I, you know, we had project numbers. So if if it was pertinent to a project, I would put the project number down too. So, and who I talked to. And if it was really important, I would timestamp it. So it's just a matter of being consistent and, and always having something to write on and to write with. And if you always have a pen, I mean, you can write on your hand. Right. I mean, perception-wise, that looks more diligent than taking out your phone. and. Yeah, I was uh, a big fan of those uh, bleedless Sharpie markers with the real fine point. Yep. Yeah, those are slick. Uh, I am – I don't have one on me. I have the fantastic Iron Range Engineering uh, click pen (laughs) in front of me. But uh, I really like Pilot Energel pens. Like, that's my plug. Hashtag – not a sponsor <laughs> yet <laughs> yet pilot Energel. those are the best pens i've ever used they're nice so do you have anything to add to that about notes uh well i yeah i just definitely always brought pen and paper with me uh even at the very least i never used my phone to take notes but to snap a quick picture of like a machine screen or something like that so I could go back and do that. But like to th- that was at the most that I would use my phone was to take a picture and record something quick yep. that way, but never to take notes on something electronic. Right. Awesome. So that's our, that's our advice. That's elaborating on this segment brought to you by Notes. Take them. So see ya. See ya. All right, so we have a special event today that we're going to be doing here. Um, Justin, can you explain what we're doing? Yeah, so we're going to be doing a bell ringing for the uh, co-op students for the bell program that have finally received an offer. Why do so, we Why do we ring the bell? I know like at IRE that was a thing where we, we only rang the bell when we got a full-time job. So why, why are we ringing the bell for a co-op? Right, because, yeah, with the bell program, it's pretty much the basis of what this program survives off of is that the students get their co-op. So we're going to make it uh, as special as ringing the big bell, but just on a scaled down version. So we rang a uh, coffee pot or like a a personal coffee maker size bell. I, I, when I was here, that was the lunch bell. So every time that rings, I get kind of hungry and think, that, oh, it's, <laughs> there's free food. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. It's just as special, just not as uh, hunger satisfying. But let's uh, let's get to it. Let's do it. This is Riley Smith. I accepted a position with Ford Audio Video in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. My first day is January twentieth. In this position, I will be installing audio and video solutions for customers of Ford Audio Video. Yay! Good job, Riley. Congratulations, Riley. Well. Now it's time. It's time. It's time to ring ring that that bell. bell. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, How? We should just leave this in there. (laughs) Ring the bell, Riley. Do it. Do it. You have no control over this. Do it. All right, so Justin and I both shared stories about um, our experiences with imposter syndrome, but uh, we have Emily Cyberling in here in the podcast room. Hello, Emily. 
Hello, Tony and Justin. Thanks for having me. Yay. Thanks for being here. So uh, Emily has a cool short story about imposter syndrome to share. So. Uh, so I have a bunch of stories about imposter syndrome, but the one I'm going to share has to do with actually my co-op. Uh, so back in my undergraduate university, it certainly wasn't required for students to do internships or co-ops, but almost everyone did. And so a lot of my classmates were off doing co-ops. They did internships and co-ops as soon as, you know, their sophomore years, their junior years. Um, but because I had imposter syndrome myself, I just didn't have the confidence to do them that early. So I waited to do mine until the second semester of my fourth year. Side note, I took five years to graduate. So basically my first yep. senior <laughs> year, um, because I really want to take as many classes I could and get just as much foundational knowledge and skills as possible before I went on the co-op. Um, I just, at the time especially, didn't like being wrong or you know not knowing things, saying I don't know is really hard for me. Right, definitely yeah. is. <laughs> I love being wrong, I mean. <laughs> it's gotten better now, uh, but I was really good at being, like, being right. right. And so I was uncomfortable with being wrong. And so I wanted to like do as many classes as I could before I went to an actual company. And like, it was very scary for me to think that I would be, you know, like making or breaking. Well, I wouldn't be breaking the well-being of the company, but right. I certainly would be contributing to it. Right. Um, so yeah, so I waited longer than I should have probably, but so I got to my co-op and I should point out, there were a few situations where having as much background knowledge as I had were helpful. Okay. So it yeah. wasn't a complete waste to have. There were a few things that I picked up really quick. Right. Um, a couple of times when my bosses were impressed that I knew something. Again, I had taken three and a half years of classes. So. Yeah, you had the technical experience there. Yeah. Um, there were still a bunch of things I needed to learn, though. And most of my projects, upon reflecting at the end of the semester, I was like, actually, I, I could have done these projects way earlier. It would have maybe taken me a little bit longer to figure them out. Right. But I could have done them way earlier. Um, and this was confirmed when, so my co-op was a January to August co-op. And the person who like took over my projects for me was a June to December co-op. So we had a summer of overlap. And my one of my responsibilities that summer was to train this guy. Um, do I use a pseudonym? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we Let's just call him James. James? James. I like that. Is his name, but not really. Anyway, so James was supposed to take over to me, and when I first learned that I was going to train someone, I'm like, cool, yeah, what's, tell me about yourself, James. And I was like, so I just finished my first year of college, <laughs> and I went, oh, man, I'm like training <laughs> someone who just finished their freshman year, and I was doubtful at first, but then by the end of the summer, it was like, he's going to do great on these projects. I had complete confidence in, a bit in his ability to do them, even though he had walked in. And so by the end of the summer, I was definitely kind of, regretting that I had put off co-op for so long because yeah. I could have done it way earlier. Right. That's a, that's a great story. Um, we'll come back with some advice after this. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. We're back with some, uh, we're just going to kind of finish this up with uh, our thoughts and advice on how to overcome this imposter mm -hmm. syndrome. So, um, you know, my big thing was we were talking over the, over the break. I'm going to air quote the break here. Um, so my advice is, like, you just relax. Um, no one knows everything. I, mean, I second you? that. Yeah, Emily. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. No one Tertiary knows everything. second. <laughs> much, much to, you know, 
dismay. You don't know everything, and no one you work with knows everything, even though they'll probably make you think they do. But um, and then you know we do something here called a a design process. <coughs> design process. Wait, what? So yeah, is it, is it like a wheel or something? <laughs> right. So just you know, if if you, there is stuff you had to figure out, just you know, calm down and just break it down into steps. Um, you know, we did that in uh, setting goals and action plans when we answered the question of the week. So. Um, break things down into steps that are manageable. So someone else, let's keep going. Yeah, so like one of the nice things that I, I always try to fall back on is that there's a time where you'll notice that somebody who does have imposter syndrome will overemphasize or uh, overcompensate their imposter syndrome with like a, a I, I know everything or I need to figure it out right away type attitude. So yeah, to just be humbled, be calm and cool and collected and use your resources around you for sure. Find out who's experts in your areas or in your company and then just keep note of that. And, right. and that'll help with uh, when you're stuck or you feel like you need some help, you know who to call. Did you say contact. note? Note? Did you say keep note, note of that? Yeah, keep note. Keep note of that. Notes? Yeah, oh. we talked about notes already once today. Yes, like you might want to have a place in your notes where you just keep a list of who is the expert in what. Right. Yeah, so I found one thing uh, that um, when I was on co-op was, re well, even today, it was really helpful is I always have a notebook with me to take notes on things. Um, the only time I didn't have my notebook with me on co-op is when I went into the clean room where I was not allowed to take my notebook in with me because it's a clean room. Um, and it was like a particle-free room and everything, so had to be very careful. But otherwise, having my notebook with me was really helpful because if I could take notes on everything that I was like hearing whenever I was having conversations with people, I could then review those notes if it was something that you know didn't lock in my memory right away. Like if I was having a half-hour conversation, I'm not going to remember that whole thing off the top of my head. But like taking notes helped me, and then also I could note, I can note. I still do this today, like things I need to look up later. Right. So, you know, if there is something I don't know and then my imposter syndrome is like, oh my gosh, I don't know that. Um, it's less of a problem because I've, you know, I put a little star next to a word or phrase or something and I just know to look at that up later. Right. Right. That can be as simple as just like the, the, the jargon thrown around at mm -hmm. a company. Right. It, like, f like as embarrassing as it is for me being um, such a gearhead is I, I didn't understand thread pitch lingo like out here quarter 20 and like for the first couple days mm -hmm. I was like what's quarter 20 mean yeah. and then yeah finally I was like oh yeah we're talking about like yeah threads and yeah the the specs on those I was just thought it was bind, bind thread and coarse thread right so it was little notes like that that I uh, that I picked up on and took and you can also sometimes just like if you're talking to someone just ask them right away like right. they they're like the people who hired you are aware that I mean, one, you're student engineers, and two, regardless, even if you were, you know, a professional engineer, if you're new to the company, you just might not know the lingo. Right. So, you know, it's okay in some situations, especially if it's one-on-one, -on -one, to just, like, pause someone and be like, so when you say... Insert here quarter, quarter 20 threads. Quarter 20 threads. Yeah. Or, well, th threads, but if you say quarter 20, like, what do you mean? Oh, thread pitch. Okay, well, now I know what you're talking about. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And it's okay to say, oh, wow. I feel dumb. I don't. I didn't even think about that. But thank you for clarifying. You know, mm -hmm. um, what I found is that a lot of times, if you're not asking questions, they get really worried um, that you're just sitting there spinning your wheels at your desk or pulling your hair out. So um, there is a. I mean, there's a balance between asking too many questions and not enough questions. But um, and then one way I always 
kind of overcame this. If someone asked me something that to do something and I didn't know what I was doing, I'd say, I don't know, but I know how to find out or I know I can find out. Um, and then another thing I would do to kind of calibrate how well I was doing was to ask, mm-hmm. how long do you think this task is going to take? Yes. You know, and, and it, then I have something to gauge like, okay, I finished this like a lot faster. So either they have really low expectations for me or they just didn't have a good or a good enough background on, you know, my process or, or what the job would actually entail. But that's another way, just, just little things to ask. Um, does anyone else have anything to add to that? Yeah, with the back to my story on the CMM when I found out that the program had the ability to pause midway through and then make edits and then continue from where you paused. Before I knew about that, I spent 40 hours on one part. I should have stopped after two days instead of powering through it for five Mm -hmm. to ask my boss and say, hey, how long do you think this part should take and should I move on to something else and uh, forget that part because it wasn't going to come up in the... uh, It wasn't going to go through production for a while. It was just the one I was working on. So I could have had time to work on parts that were coming up in the CNC process to to get manufactured. Uh, So that that was like a a failure, a learning point for me to to be able to take a step back, get humbled and realize, yeah, you can ask for help or maybe just need to move on and come back to it later. Right. Well, I think that's about all we had to talk about today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. So I think the final thoughts are uh, this... You just heard from three different people who went into three different industries uh, and had multiple imposter syndrome experiences. So you're not alone. No, it happens uh, to everyone. Yeah. It still happens sometimes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, I talk to Ron once in a while and he'd be like, I don't think I belong here. <laughs> <laughs> but in some way you feel like you are completely uh, yeah, involved in, and belong there at the same time. He has a, It's a strange quality that Ron brings, yes. but it's, yeah, it's good. All right. Well, thanks, Emily, for joining us. Yes, thank awesome. you for having me. Very I fun. enjoyed it. Good job today, Justin. Thanks, Tony. I think this went really well. Good job today as well. Thanks. All, All right. right. Talk to you next week. Bye now. Bye. Pow, pow.